Yo, what's good everyone? It's Anushan and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Howdy how y'all. Welcome to another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm Asui, and today joining me are Eric. Yes, sir. And AC. What's up, guys? Tonight we had a really exciting basketball game between the Warriors and the Grizzlies, two of the most dangerous teams in the West. So guys, guess who's back? Back, back, back again. Again, again. Clay is back. <laughs> Tell a friend. Well, I guess I just what? told you guys. <laughs> One of the worst rappers who have has aged as poorly as I could think. But keep it going. Why don't we break down tonight's game and then let's do a little bit of a deeper dive on the Grizzlies because they are having a Cinderella season. And honestly, they deserve a real breakdown and just everything that's been awesome about them this season. So what did you guys think about tonight's game? It looked, initially in the third quarter, it looked like the Warriors were running away with it. But hey, at the end of the day, the Grizzlies pulled out the win. It's a 10-game win streak now. They won 116-108 to with Ja putting up 29 points, Jaron Jackson going 13-11, and and on the other side, Steph Curry had a 27-point triple-double. So there's a lot to unpack there, guys. What do you think? I mean, my first thought coming into this game is like, holy shit, we got to see a battle of you know, sort of the hottest team in the league. They were coming in with a nine game win streak and the team that most of us probably think deep down is the best team in the West. And, you know, I, I kind of expected the Grizzlies to be competitive, but then the Warriors to kind of smack them down when it really mattered. But it went the other way around. And my takeaway is my Lord, is this team well set? Because we all knew coming into this season that this Grizzlies team had a young core that was super exciting. I mean, it's crazy how few guys on this team were even in the NBA the last time Klay Thompson played basketball. I mean, it's actually insane what a young core they've built here. That's so true. Most right? of these I mean, guys are like, what, they're two or three-year players now? Yeah. And, you know, that sort of team is sort of exciting. Usually, is what you expect to be a fringe playoff team or the kind of team that a veteran team would be excited to face. But they're not like that at all. They play super hard on night-to-night basis. They're incredibly physically overwhelming, but in large part due to the dominance of John Morant, they also execute offensively, particularly down down the stretch, at an extremely high level, and that showed up once again tonight. So, AC, we've been speaking about John Morant uh, previously in a couple of pods where we've been paralleling the season he's having currently with the season that Derrick Rose had in 2010-2011, in which he won the MVP. Well, what was interesting tonight to me about this game that they just played, there was a game in January the 15th of 2011, in which the Derrick Rose-led Chicago Bulls won against the Miami Heat 99-96, and Derrick Rose had a 34-point game. Now, that in a vacuum would seem like it has no significant meaning. But for Derrick Rose, it, like, escalated 
an introduction to people actually looking at him as somewhat as one of the MVP frontrunners. Previously, he had look, been looked at as being in a mix, but then he was kind of taken serious. And I can't help but think that there are some parallels between this game that John Morant just had, where he didn't have like enormous stats in a traditional sense, but late in the game, just like Derrick Rose late in the game, made the difference as far as like leading his team to have some type of like deficit away from the from this team that was elite that they were able to beat. Derrick Rose, just like Ja Morant, was able to do that. And then suddenly we have narratives about, oh, yeah, so this person is one of the elite MVP contenders. Just like Derrick Rose, this guy, I don't think on counting stats is necessarily one of the top three or four guys, but I'm starting to see something developing where I can definitely see Ja Morant being one of the like finalists for MVP. On top of what you said, Eric, about Ja Morant's play, let's not forget that they were missing tonight their starting center and Steven Adams, who's had a really good season after kind of being a bit of a forgotten player in the last few years. And then arguably their second best player, depending on, or at least their third best player, depending on how you rank Jaron Jackson Jr., Desmond Bean. There's, there's so many young guys here, but they're, they're missing Dylan Brooks, who is a fantastic two-way player and exactly the kind of guy that they would have used to put on someone like a Steph or a Clay. So the fact that they can still get it done on this 10-game winning streak has been extremely impressive to me. You'd think without Steven Adams, they'd have an issue with boards. Well, they completely dominated the offensive boards tonight, and that was probably the difference. I mean, AC, you mentioned that this is a young team that didn't shy away from the moment. Yeah, that that's exactly right, because if you think about it, in the first two quarters, the Grizzlies outscored the Warriors, but in the third quarter, which which is when games often really swing, the Grizzlies got outscored by the Warriors by 11. However, in the last quarter, the Grizzlies outscored the Warriors 29-18, to 18, meaning they took a punch to the mouth, but then they gave one right back. And for a young team, that's very galvanizing, especially when you're going up against such a dominant Warriors team. And it says a lot that this is a cap on a 10-game win streak it, it really bodes well for them moving forward. Also, I'm glad you brought up the rebounding part of this because from what I've seen, this is a team that if you don't, if you try to play small against them or if you try to be a little bit too cute against them, they will punish you on the glass. I, you know, a perfect example of, of this is just the other night against the Lakers, right? The Lakers small ball teams killed some of the bottom feeders in the NBA. But when those guys are kind of half-assing it with their effort, You'd have guys off the bench like John Conchar just fly in for offensive rebounds. Brandon Clark hits the glass, right? They have a big lineup. If you think about it, right, John Moran is the smallest guy on the floor, and he's not that small. He's a pretty big point guard, all things considered. He's slight of frame, but he's got a lot of size to him. So this is a team that, if you know, they're going to overwhelm you physically, even without someone like Steven Adams. When you add him and Brooks to the mix, their floor from, from a basic game is going to be really high because they're going to have physicality and athleticism that the average team just doesn't have. I think there's a fundamental problem with the Warriors. If your leading rebounder is Steph Curry with 10, 
And your next highest rebounders is Gary Payton. Are the centers sleeping or what? Give credit to the Grizzlies for their rebounding prowess. But it also shows that the Warriors might have a real weakness there because bigger teams will just out-rebound them unless they show up the interior before the playoffs start. So, look, we know Draymond didn't play. Thus, some of what they did on the boards, we need to look at it with a grain of salt. On the other hand, as AC already pointed out, they've been able to bully other teams on the boards in a very physical manner. He used the example of the Lakers that bodes well for their future prospects. So the thing I think I want to point out, because I'm all about narratives tonight, because I'm I'm really getting behind what the Grizzlies are fomenting right now. Wait, so are the Grizzlies now one of your teams, Eric? Have you added that to the... Uh, so we got Charlotte, Charlotte, we got the Bulls, we got the Wizards, we got the Lakers sometimes. You got the Sixers it, in there? Like, God, no. Oh, come <laughs> like, on, like, like, I understand no. if you don't have the Knicks, but at least you got to get the Sixers in there. I, I would rather... Brother we love. I would, City of brother I would, love. I would rather commit, commit Seppuku in, <laughs> instead of like having the Knicks wow. as one of, my, one of my potential teams. The way but, to go from zero to 100 real quick. Eric, if I can respond briefly, being a Knicks fan is committing suicide, so <laughs> I totally understand. <laughs> I mean, AC agrees with it, so it seems above board. But no, so like, look, guys, like I'm all about themes right now, and I'm just seeing so many parallels. It seems like this Grizzlies team, and I I texted this to you all earlier tonight. And what I was saying to you all, I'm looking at like Jaron Jackson Jr. He's like a hybrid of Joe Kim Noah and Carlos Boozer. I'm not going to call Joe Kim Noah what I accidentally called him earlier tonight, AC, which was Ho Kim. Which Freudian I don't, slip? I, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't want some seven-foot-one weird Frenchman slash sideshow Bob coming at me <laughs> oh. and attacking me at my apartment. So I apologize. I meant Joe Kim. Um, Dylan Brooks is, when he's actually around, is some like facsimile of Luau Dang. Of course, I had, you know, Desmond Bang as Kyle Korver, and Ja Morant is in the Derrick Rose role. I say that to say this team is very well set up right now to be incredibly competitive. We know the Chicago Bulls of 2010-2011. They made it all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals where they were the favorite to get to the NBA finals they were a 62 and 20 team it's just I guess <laughs> Dwayne Wade and LeBron James went gangbusters against Derrick Rose at some point that it was just like it was murder but I I don't see in the Western Conference right now any team that is some type of facsimile of the Miami Heat first year who were just trying to figure it out, I could legitimately see this team being a contender. And they're going to be scary in the next half of the year, man. So, Eric, you mean to say that you think that these guys should be the favorites to go to the finals? 
Nah, see, you always doing that shit with those hot takes. I didn't no, I see mean, that. I mean, because well, you're you're making the parallel, right? You're 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 building this up, saying that you know they remind you of the this Bulls team, and then that Bulls team was favored to go to the finals, except they met a LeBron Wade Miami Heat team. So you have that comparison, but you don't have the Miami Heat team comparison, which implies that you're saying that they should be favored to go to the finals. Is that I am I wrong I think, in that assumption? I think at the very least, if I were a betting man, which I am a betting man, and at you some are. point I'm gonna I'm gonna make the bet on this because I'm a degenerate to my core. <laughs> I'm going to assume that Things will play out that this will be one of the Western Conference finalists. Okay. Wow. Okay. That's uh. Also, can I get a hot take alert for that, please? <laughs> hot take alert. Wow, you gotta you gotta back that up now. Like juvenile, back that up, girl. <laughs> <laughs> More than juvenile, you gotta actually explain it. You can't just sing it. No, I mean, like, look. So, <laughs> like, all jokes aside, all things considered, I think this team has gone on a run. Their run, contrary to popular opinion, actually started when Ja Morant missed a couple of games. That's true. Uh, do you? Yep, like, absolutely. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and they started getting a little healthier. And they started winning by defense. So the defense is there. The foundation is there. Now you add Ja Morant to the mix. A guy who, if you compare him to this former MVP, he's leading him in all advanced stats. And he has a jumper and he's a slightly better playmaker, according to my estimation. You have all the ingredients for a young team to be at least knocking at the door. Now, and I'm biased, so I think those type of young teams who knock at the door, they usually don't enter. But I can definitely see them on the precipice. I, I wouldn't be surprised if what you're saying is true. because From what I've heard from just fans around the NBA, right? Especially fans in the West. That fifth seed is kind of coveted right now amongst that those bottom feeders because it's perceived that the Grizzlies will be the easiest first-round opponent. And I think that's entirely because of what you said, Eric, the lack of experience on that team. If this was if this team was like sort of three years down the road of this trajectory they're on, <laughs> they could easily be the conference favorites by that time with this core that they're building naturally. They have fantastic flexibility salary cap room and you know Morant's only going to get better every year year in and year out I kind of see this team as the perfect regular season team in some ways and you know if you uh, listen to our betting guide pod that we did last week our, our guest in that pod Rahul mentioned that when it comes to over-unders this team is kind of perfect and even playing against the spread in part because they just have this core of talented young players but then they have all these other players on good salaries who are all sort of outperforming their contracts, right? So that makes for a really good regular season team as opposed to the reverse situation where you have all your money tied up in a couple of stars, like, you know, a couple of teams do where, you know, one of those guys is out, you don't have the depth to make up for that. And so I, I expect them to continue to climb the standings, but how that translates into playoff basketball where depth is not as important, 
remains to be seen. But holy shit, are these guys a lot better than I ever thought they would be. Well, Eric, to back up what you're saying, right now, the Grizzlies are first in rebounds per game, steals per game, and blocks per game in the NBA. And they have five players who average double digits, which is phenomenal. I mean, that just shows depth. And as of right now, they are fourth in the West, though I wonder if this win changes that. I'm doubtful that it would change that. I think no. they're still a decent bit behind. Are they that? I thought they were like kind they of. They are. Behind. They are tied with the with the Jazz. Jazz are are twenty eight and thirteen. Grizzlies twenty nine and fourteen. But I don't know if that's been updated yet. So, in either case, either they are third or fourth in the West, meaning they'll have a good seed and. Any team that wants to face the Grizzlies really don't know what they're asking for. If 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 there's a top four team that I would want to face if I'm in the West, it would be the Jazz. Because I don't want to touch the Suns, the Warriors, or the Grizzlies. It's funny what you just said, Oswee. And I think, just to add on really quickly, I think people forget the Grizzlies were in a play-in game last year. Mm-hmm. And they made it out of the play-in game into a series so at the very least this very very young team this precocious squad they have a history of some minimal playoff success i mean that's playoff experience you know that's that's valuable playoff experience you know did they get far no but that's experience nonetheless it's you know the the narrative that they're some inexperienced team is isn't exactly fair. I understand they don't have deep playoff experience the way that a Warriors or a Suns or a Jazz might, but they aren't as green as folks would imply that they are. And you know we mentioned Brooks is out. Well, right now Brooks is out for three to five weeks with an ankle injury, but once he comes back, I mean. You know, they could climb in the standings, too. It's really possible that these guys have a lot more left in the tank that we haven't seen yet. I've also always thought that the Grizzlies have one of the hidden, amazing home court advantages. Because, you know, everybody in the league knows about Portland or Utah or Denver with their altitude advantage. But Memphis, like, every time they're in the playoffs, the fans go crazy. It's kind of like they have this sort of, starting from the Zebo era, uh, with you know Tony Allen and Gasol, they had this sort of grit and grind culture for a relatively I love new those team. Grizzlies. I love that Grizzlies era. Zebo's the uh, me man. too. They always outperformed their talent on their roster, and yep. they were always exciting to play in. And I was Tony felt, Allen. always felt that it was a hard arena to to win in. And so, you know, to the extent they get some sort of home court advantage, I think these sort of middling teams like the Nuggets, Lakers, Clippers. That sort of tier teams, the Mavericks. I'm not sure that the Grizzlies will be this easy out that we're all thinking that they are. No doubt. And, you know, we can't talk about the Grizzlies without talking about their superstar. And yes, I said superstar, John Morant. This guy is playing on another level. He's without question in the conversation for MVP, in my mind. Now, you know, obviously there's tears for it, but. You know, you can't talk about MVPs this season without at least giving an honorable mention, at the bare minimum, to John Morant. 
because what he's done this year, he's elevated his game in ways we didn't even think were possible. One criticism was that he wasn't a great perimeter shooter, but we've seen that that's increased this year. So question, Oswe, and this is the question for you. I've often like battled with this. So I ask myself all the time, how many superstars can possibly be in a league? So for a long time, I had a rule. It was like the rule of three, not like the rule of two from Star Wars. Or are you a Sith or something? Like, <laughs> are you like the rule I of two? I knew you were going to say it. I knew you were going to say it. That's why I said a rule of three. Okay. <laughs> and I, I would always say like at any given time, there can't be more than three superstars. Now, that's not no hard concrete rule because there's no room for it. We make it up ourselves. But I wonder how many superstars are in a league because for me, like, Ja Morant, while an excellent player, I don't know if I will put him in the superstar category. Because for me, like, a superstar would be, like, a player that I know from proven history. Right, If I put okay. him on any team, he's going to be able to lead that team to the playoffs. And at the very least, if he's healthy, like, make some noise in the playoffs. Okay, and that's I just fair. don't know if John Morant's there yet. That that's fair. You know, it is perfectly fair to say my calling him a superstar is premature. I I I agree with that, and perhaps it is. But when you break down the advanced stuff on Ja, you know, it shows that he's certainly trending that way. And think about it: between year one and two. He improved. But between year two and three, he really took a a leap. Remember, this guy's only in year three. And already he we we're seeing improvements in his game that a star doesn't really do. You know, like I, I think it takes a special type of player. One is mindset. Obviously, mindset. You gotta have to work. I mean <laughs> Ben Simmons, right? Um and the other thing is <laughs> and the other thing is like talent right like if if shade (laughs) but am am i wrong right like what 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 you're right ben simmons should be a superstar but he's not it's it's just like what when when you think about the mindset that ja has you, you know and then you put the talent you put that together you that's why we're seeing him playing as well as he does now let me give some advanced stats behind He's only a 38% three-point shooter, but he's in the 99th percentile in three-point shot creation. He's in the 97th percentile in total ISO effective field goal percentage. Let's talk about finishing. 100th percentile in the percentage of rim unassisted and in adjusted drives per 75. And he's in the 99th percentile in getting to the rim. In playmaking, he's in the 99th percentile in assist points per 75 high volume assist per 75, scoring gravity, playmaking talent. He's in the 100th percentile in passing creation volume, box creation. Oh, but wait, that's when he's on the ball. What about off the ball? He's 91st percentile in off-screen possessions per 75, uh, 90th percentile in off-screen shares, and 98th percentile in cut field goal percentage, which is great when you think about 
the fact that he plays with guys like Bane and Brooks and even JJJ with those guys, if this guy is this good off the ball and on the ball, I mean, that's why the, this Grizzlies team is so good. And defensively, he gets a bad rap. But when you talk about matchup difficulty and position versatility, he's in 93rd and 94th percentile, respectively. Now, yes, I understand we take all of that with a grain of salt because he's a guard and the guards in the league are incredible. Fair. But it also shows he's not a scrub at defense either. He has the athleticism, he has the length to really bother guys in ways that a lot of other guards can't. So it's not, I I don't think it's that he was ever a bad defender. He was just a young player. How often is it that we see young players not good at defense? You know, we ha- we're we spoiled by Mobley and Barnes telling us otherwise. Or the Matisse Thibels of the world. Shout out to Matisse. <laughs> but like, John Moran is showing that he has all of the makings of a superstar. And yes, fine. Let's, let's have the proven, you know, playoff performance to back it up. But it's just these little things, these improvements in year three alone that make me feel like this guy's on the path for sure. But you know what, Oswee? I think you got a, a great point going there. I don't even think, like, thinking of it defensively, I don't think he ever needs to be, like, an elite defender. He doesn't. He doesn't. Like, to to be, like, a superstar. Like, we know Steph Curry's not an elite defender, but he has an elite defense around him. And from what you're saying, from these creation stats, he does everything elite as far as like involving his guys so i think that's like definitely um something to put on his like a notch on his belt of how great he's been performing this year and and let's not also forget that when we're talking about defense there is your ability as the defender and also your ability to be a a sixth man for the other team you know He's not a negative defender in that way. Like he he doesn't need to be elite, but he doesn't also need to hurt. Like look at Danny Green right now. Has he lost a step? Sure. Is he the defender he used to be? No. Dwight Howard's the same. But are they negative? Are they going to like are they going to be a sieve on defense? No. They 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 are solid. You know that you they were right, You were right you were right there until you said Dwight Howard, dog. Well, I mean, look, Dwight still has. He's, he's a still got it, man. Nah, he's, he's still a, got. He's still got. He's no, still got some, listen, some signs in there. Listen. Oh, it, are, are there signs? You think, <laughs> guys? Really? Listen. You think there? There's there's signs of life. <laughs> Eric, you're you're just a a struggling Lakers fan. That's you're letting that get in front of you. But look, in the name <laughs> of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, can you say Dwight Howard is a negative defender? No. I think he doesn't he doesn't hurt you guys. Yeah, like there's times where what he does is not optimal, right? So if anyone with high foot speed or like a perimeter shooting big on another team, or if you're playing against Steph, you can't use Dwight. But I mean he has a lot of value still as a defender, positionally, understanding oh, yeah. angles, that kind of thing. But I I don't want to get too off topic here because Eric's question is apt, right? The term superstar gets used far too often in my opinion. But I, I think limiting it to three is somewhat arbitrary. The way I personally view 
superstardom is, can you be the best player on a championship caliber team? As in like a team that can win four playoff rounds, right? And the thing, the reality is with Ja Morant, we don't know yet. But that shouldn't be like before LeBron proved that he could do it. I think he was already sort of hitting that that kind of a, a space as a player and sort of showing enough that we could extrapolate and say, we think he can do it. What us, we went through those advanced stats in different areas. It was kind of remarkable, right? What he was saying there. What he basically said was, this guy is an elite finisher, an elite playmaker. And you guys are discussing that he doesn't need to be an elite defender, but the numbers actually say that he is elite defensively. He is in the top one percentile of perimeter defenders in the NBA. He's elite in per possession steals in the NBA. So he's active enough on that end. And I think Eric was 100% right when he, when he brought up Steph Curry. It doesn't really matter you know, that Steph Curry isn't a lockdown defender. We know that he's a smart positional defender. And yeah, like maybe in a series where they're switching everything against LeBron and Kyrie Irving, you know, he's a guy they'll pick on because there's no one else to pick on. But he's never a guy that, as us we said, is a six man for the other team where he's literally so bad that it's it's a problem for your defense. The way that Trey Young has been just this year once again. If anything, John Morant has been, by every statistical measure, actually a really good defender. You know, another factor to throw in there, another advanced stat, he's in the top one percentile of all NBA players in terms of loose ball recovery rate. So this is a guy who's hustling his ass all over the place, on the ball, off the ball. And I love that Asu brought up his ability to play off the ball because that's a differentiator between him and the other players in his mold, right? Because when I think of John Morant, I thought initially of sort of a young Westbrook or a young Derek Rose, as Eric said. Those guys are much worse when you take the ball out of their hands. This guy, he's elite on or off the ball, and he's showing and the emergence of an increasingly consistent three-point shot. So if he's got every single box ticked, I mean, it, it's not crazy to think that he's approaching superstar right now. And one thing that I actually noticed about him, AC and Oswe, because... You all are touting his defensive bona fides. And I actually think the stats you all are using are pretty, like, on point. At least they point to him being a good defender. I saw something that said he tracked defensively more like a young Chris Paul than a young Russell Westbrook. And to me, that's <laughs> that's kind of emblematic of what he actually is exactly now my biggest concern though about John Morant is along the lines of your Derrick Rose comparison because when you see what this guy does the the crazy high-flying dunks or that I don't is it a is it a block is it a steal you know that crazy play where he basically just catches the ball in the air against the backboard against the Lakers the other night. That was one of the best defensive plays of the season, if not the most spectacular one, because he was so high up to catch the ball off the glass. Athletically, it was the best defensive play of the season. And we all know, because we've been watching ball forever, to get up high and grab something with two hands is a lot more difficult to grab it with one. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but 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 here's the thing. This kid is so cavalier about it. It's just like, oh yeah, like another just jumping over. Yeah, not not no no problem, nothing like that. It's like 
for me, if I had to like jump over like a thumbtack or something, like this guy is just, he's so casual with it. But the problem is when you're that wiry, when you are, when you are jumping so much like that and you're, you're playing so hard like that, and especially if you have the burden of being your team star player, it kind of makes me nervous. It really makes me nervous. And I just hope the basketball gods smile down on him because I I just want to see more of this. I don't want anything to happen. Knock on wood, you know, pray to Jesus or, or whoever, you know, basketball Jesus, you know, pray to him. Jesus Shuttleworth. Praise, you know? b- praise be to Moses Malone and Jesus Shuttleworth. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's a valid concern, Aswi, because of the torque that he jumps with, given his frame. It, it really, like, the only player I've ever seen with his kind of frame jump like that is, is Derek Rose, as Eric mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, and, and as you alluded to, Aswi. The thing that worries me a little bit about Ja is that he tries to dunk when it's like not even a good idea to dunk, like when there's like a seven foot guy in his way and he's still trying to jump over him and dunk it. Like there's a lot of times like he has unbelievable hang time. Some of his layups that he make don't even make sense from like a physics standpoint, but he still does it. But sometimes he just tries to go over the top of people and he takes hard falls a lot. And so that is not something that I don't, I don't think he needs to even do that because he's good at, at floater range and he's such a good layup you know, guy with both hands right now. You know, he's he's right up there with Kyrie as, as, as one of the best layup guys in the NBA. And, and it's different. He's more of a hang time guy as, as opposed to like a touch guy. But he's got that. So to the extent that he can reduce that role and still be the same effective player that he is, I hope he does so. Because I think he could maybe go just a little bit less hard and still be more or less just as efficient. But see, AC, that's why I'm less worried about him. Because I actually think that finishing, he has a, a multitude of, like moves around the room. And I also think he has a jump shot that I don't think he needs to be as dominant, like just throwing himself like a barbarian against the Roman gates over and over and over again, that at some point the injury is just bound to happen. I suspect as his game develops and it's been developing his shot, Each year gets better and better. He takes more as far as like if you actually look at the volume that some of this will change. I'm not as worried about him as some other players. And I do want to point out that a guy like Derrick Rose, when he blew his leg out, it didn't seem like it was him falling over someone more than it was just like he blew his leg out. Yeah, and that was on a jump stop. It wasn't even like he was jumping up to dunk. You know, you know, jump stop is a, obviously a high torque thing that a sudden change of speed happens. But still, to your point, yeah, facts, facts, yeah, big facts. I, I just, I think Derrick Rose is more of somewhat, and it's happened multiple times, but it's it's more like an anomaly than like us expecting like jaw to have one of those instances where he just makes the wrong move and shit just blows out. I I suspect that knock on wood, it won't be a situation like that. Of course it could be, but I'm not going to be like, Oh yeah, he's so athletic and that shit's going to happen. Like, nah. Well guys, we mentioned John Rant's ability to create for others, right? Well, 
it's one thing to be able to create for others. It's another to have someone to create off that. And Jaron Jackson Jr. is perhaps the perfect person to pair with Ja for that reason. I mean, off ball, this guy is something else. He's in the 99th percentile of off-screen possessions per 75, 98th percentile on off-screen shares, 92nd percentile on movement impact per 75, and 96th percentile of cut shares. So what does that mean? That means this guy is a problem whenever he's off the ball. Yeah, I think that's an important point to identify, Oswee, because he's in a role where he's not always playing the five, right? Because traditionally, when you have a big man like Jaron Jackson Jr., it makes sense you would think to put him at the five a lot more. But because they have other traditional big men on the roster, like Brandon Clark and, and most notably Steven Adams, he's forced to play a lot at the four. But he's not just standing there, you know, looking for open shots and not moving. He's actually cutting really well off the ball. He's using space extremely well. And also, he can play at the five. And I think ultimately, long-term in his career, he will be the closing five for the Grizzlies when it really matters, from what I've seen. AC, he has to be the five because I I know that he is, in theory, supposed to be a guy to stretch the floor, but can you really stretch the floor if you're shooting 31% from beyond the arc, right? So I think ultimately that's what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to play him at the five, and they're going to have to put a better spacer at the four. But that being said... You know, what he can do in space is it almost makes up for the fact that his three point shooting leaves a little bit to be desired. I think he's going to be like a, a, a very poor man's on a winning team, Anthony Davis. You'll put him at the five. He's not going to shoot great from the three. He'll shoot like serviceably, serviceably for what <laughs> you want a five to shoot. And he also can protect the rim. I think he's versatile uh, as far as a rim protector and a, a guy who's very athletic who could also defend at various points on the floor. But, nah, he's not going to be some guy that's, like, shooting in the high 30s as a five. Nah, he's not going to be that type of floor spacer. Not at all. Eric, I have a question for you. Okay. You, okay. earlier this season, you said that you would maybe prefer – to have Jaron Jackson Jr. than DeAndre Ayton. And, you know, at the time, given that Jaron Jackson Jr. had been pretty injured the last couple of years, it seemed a bit outlandish. You, you thought know, I was crazy. Yeah. You know, I, I have to say, like, a couple of years ago, I was pretty high on, on, on Triple J. Uh, but then the last year or so, you just couldn't get on the court often enough, in my opinion. And Ayton was spectacular in the run to the finals. I think on this team... You can make an argument that he's kind of the perfect complementary player, and I would rather have him than Aiden with someone like Ja because, you know, he he's just such a good like he has so many things he can do off the ball, and also his defensive versatility that he brings to the table. So I'm just gonna throw this out there to you right now, see in a vacuum, not on the Grizzlies, but just on, in a vacuum. If you could have DeAndre Aiden or Triple J. Not J. Jonah Jameson, the Spider-Man guy, but Jaron Jackson Jr. <laughs> oh, oh, I was going to say, or or Jenna Jameson. Or Jenna Jameson, who's now sadly in uh, some sort of horrible disease has befallen. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I don't know where, 
Where, where I'm going with this? We're, we're, we're going really, we're going really off topic. You're the one who brought Jenna Jameson. Yeah, I know. Oh, it just came up news today. You made me bring up Jenna Jameson. I didn't even know the Spider-Man person. I didn't know them by name, but they have similar names. <laughs> no, it's I, I, anyway, I don't even know who Jenna Jameson is. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> you, you can Google her. Anyway, uh, moving on from that. Uh, who would you rather have between Triple J and DeAndre Ayton? Um, yeah, that's a difficult one. <laughs> so, also, we apparently just found out who Jenna Jameson is. But moving on from that, AC, because I'm an adult being responsible, <laughs> uh, I, I think that still I will probably have Triple J from the Grizzlies. And I stand by that. I I still think like his ceiling as a defender and as a versatile defender in a modern NBA defense is still a lot higher. And though I like Aiden, I don't think his offensive ceiling makes me think that he's going to be a markedly better player than JJJ. So... If I were rolling the dice, I would guess that the big who has the foundational ability to space the floor, and I think he's going to be a more versatile defender, and he can like play different facets of the floor and protect the rim, and I think he has some baby Anthony Davis abilities. Yeah, I, I, I think I'll pick him. If there's one thing I learned from doing this podcast with you guys – it's the value of bigs with defensive versatility, right? And Jaron Jackson Jr. is great interior, but you kind of touched on what his real bread and butter is, which is his perimeter defense. I mean, this guy is both the 97th percentile in pickpocket rating and the 98th percentile in rim defensive field goal percentage versus expected. And he's also 95th percentile in defensive rebound chances per 75%. So you basically said he's good at the three most important things a big needs to do. Exactly. Switching, because he's, I think, in the 87th in on-ball perimeter defense, elite at protecting the rim, and also elite at getting rebounds, especially defensive rebounds. So I don't know what more you could possibly want. So I think Eric's Anthony Davis comparison. Yeah, his versatility is, is definitely, that's a good comparison. But guys, the beauty of this Grizzlies team is in just how talented the rest of the team is also. Like, let's just talk about Desmond Bain for a second, right? This guy is a remarkable shooter. He's 16th in three points attempted at 235, but he's fourth in three points made at 100. He's above 40% in above the break threes, catch and shoot threes, corner threes, and pull-up threes. But he, he's also scoring like 17 points per game. Now, when Ja was out, in six of those 12 games, he scored more than 20 points per game at 52.9% true shooting percentage. Not to mention, his dribble handoff with Jaron Jackson is awesome. The crazy thing is he's not just some spot-up guy either. He's shooting 57% from the field when he's dribbling more than seven times 
He can also finish at the rim, 65% at the rim. He's a 45% shooter in the mid-range. And he's the third fastest to reach 200 three-pointers made, which he did in only 103 games. And this is just yet another guy that they have. I mean, when you look at what he's done this year, you wonder, really, what is his ceiling, actually? He's not just some Kyle Korver type that you said earlier, Eric. I think he could be a lot more than that. Well, I think he projects as being a true three-level scorer because of his ability to score basically in every area of the court. And so to find this guy, I mean, they, you could argue now that they might have found the most exciting young backcourt in the entire NBA and maybe up there already as one of the best backcourts in the NBA. You know, these things, when you say them at some points, it, it feels premature. Like I remember when Mark Jackson said that Stephen Clay were the best shooting backcourt ever and people kind of laughed at that well guess what it didn't take very long for that to be borne out to be true now this is a different kind of backcourt because Ja is a very different player than someone like Steph but there's no question that Bain is kind of in the mold of a guy like a Clay Thompson a guy's got size and strength and he can shoot from a variety of different ways so yeah it's a super exciting backcourt they have I want to touch on a different player though that they have added to this squad and it was a trade that when it was initially made, there was a lot of questions that even we had on this podcast about whether it was a good move or not. And that was the trade of Valachunas for Steven Adams. And also you said that you kind of liked the Steven Adams trade at the time because you thought that he would bring an aspect of physicality and toughness so that guys couldn't mess around and sort of take cheap shots at jaw like they had the last couple of seasons. And, you know, to me, that kind of seems like, you know, somewhat of an overrated concept. You know, this is not hockey. You don't need, like, a checking line. But that being said, he's kind of done that exact thing. Like, he will brutalize teams that try to go small against them. Like, he is the predominant offensive rebounder in the NBA this season. And so that kind of puts teams in a dilemma. You have to go big to stop him on the glass. And then John Morant just murders you with his speed and all these other wings they have, like Bain and Brooks and all those other guys who are also capable on-ball players, just completely obliterate the kind of Dwight Howard types that Eric mentioned earlier that you need to stop Steven Adams from pulverizing you on the glass. So they've got the best of both worlds right now. So who are some other guys that impress you on the Grizzlies? I know he was injured tonight, so he wasn't there. But Dylan Brooks has been fantastic. He was fantastic last year as a bit of a developing three and D type guy. And the time he played this year, he was ascending. But when he gets back on the court, like this team is going to be something to actually buy with. Like Dylan Brooks is the truth, at least as some type of glue guy, three and D guy, some guy that actually brings something to the table. And a guy that actually has some type of large footprint in their production this season. For sure, Eric. And and to add to that, it's not just that he's a 3 and D guy. Like, this is a guy who can put the ball on the floor and at times, you know, slash into the paint. And it's super valuable for teams who have a good penetrator, like uh, someone like John Moran, who can get into the lane consistently 
to be able to swing the ball and have multiple other guys, like we mentioned Desmond Bain and Dylan Brooks, who can not just hit a three, but also put the ball on the floor. Eventually, that just scrambles your defense enough that you're going to get good shots. So you know, Dylan Brooks is a huge part of what they do, and he's the guy out of anyone on that roster that's assignment is going to be, you know, you got to take up whoever that big wing is on the other team, right? Because the road to championships ultimately are going to lead to superstar after superstar, especially at the wing positions, and that's your guy to do that. Between him and Jaron Jackson, they kind of have two really good options for a guy with more size and a guy with more speed. To, to put on uh, any opposing star wing that they face. So, yeah, they're really well suited in that sense. It really is a matter of playoff experience to me. Isn't if, it if they amazing were... where the NBA has come, AC? Think about it. Like, some years ago, we were like, oh, who's going to guard this two guard? But now, with the glut of, like, incredibly talented threes who are also pretty versatile at playing the four and they have size and they have handles and they can shoot, whether that's KD or Kawhi or Paul George or LeBron. A guy like Dylan Brooks has a lot of real estate as being a pivotal member of an NBA, NBA team. And Eric, if you don't have a guy like that, you are super vulnerable. You mentioned LeBron, so you think of the Lakers right now, right? Unless AD or LeBron himself is willing to take that role on, they don't have a single player on the roster capable of doing that, and it's going to be a problem for them. You know, And it, it actually puts a ceiling on how far they can go a, as a playoff team. So to have that guy on your roster and him to be young and under contract and sort of already fit in with the dynamics that this team already has going on, it's an incredible boon to the Memphis Grizzlies. So we talked about the Grizzlies, but we have to cover what is probably the biggest story in the NBA this week, which is the return of Clay. I mean, let's put this into context. The last time Clay Thompson played, Kawhi was on the Raptors, KD was on the Warriors, Kyle Lowry Davis on the Pelicans. Davis yeah. was on the Pelicans. Kyle Lowry was back on the Raptors. Paul George and Westbrook were on the Thunder, James Harden was on the Rockets, Jimmy Buckets was on my Sixers. Wait, wait, Oswee, many Jimmys ago. <laughs> many, many Jimmys ago. <laughs> that should be our, our way of measuring time. So is Jimmy the, the long-term uh, measure of time? <laughs> I don't know how comfortable I am with this, considering considering where I got it from. Like the sexual connotation with the name Jimmy <laughs> and, and the doing it and doing it at well song from LL Cool J. And I don't know how comfortable I am instituting Jimmy Butler as a measure of time, but I think it sounds awesome. Should it be many Jimmy's ago, like a condom, or should it be many Butler's ago, like a Butler, which also has a sadomasochal element there <laughs> i think i think many jimmy's it has more uh punch to it let's just say oh okay i mean you could also just use westbrook that man's been changing his squad like literally every single year for the last four seasons i mean this is his fourth <laughs> team in four years <laughs> that's what about true. dwight he howard changes he's his team like every like year right at this point that's true dwight okay. howard wait wait many Dwight's ago and then we're not even going to add it's almost like 
<laughs> Dwight's whole sexual controversy, which when he, when he injured when he injured his glute and that whole thing, which I'm going to not say it while hinting at you guys who are listening to look it up yourself. But you know, I'm just saying, no one's mentioning it. <laughs> so to make a long comparison short, Clay Thompson is back, guys, and. We've seen how great the Warriors have been thus far this season without him. But now he's back, and he does not look bad. So what does this mean for how the playoff race is is shaping in the West? Does this make the Warriors guaranteed finals or even championship favorites? How how does this fit in? Well, I really expected that Clay Thompson coming back will lead to some Problems reintegrating him to their offense. First game back, score 17. This game, plus 18 on the plus minus. Even, you know, actually the best of any of the starters that were playing. So his impact is immediate. Now, how does that work for a guy like Jordan Poole, who had played really confidently this season and, and, and looked like a guy who could be maybe a fringe all-star kind of player one day? He's going to take a serious step back now with Clay back. I don't know how that'll all work, but Clay himself, you know what you get from him, right? Night in, night out, you have on the floor one of the five or so greatest shooters to ever play the game of basketball. And the guy, in my opinion, with the prettiest shot in the NBA. And when you have that guy, you have the guy who is the greatest shooter of all time in Steph Curry. It's a matchup nightmare. And if you're a big man out there applauding big men, even a good one with defense, we talked a lot about poor Dwight Howard in many contexts on this podcast today, but that's the kind of matchup where with Clay on one side, Steph on the other side, almost no matter what offense they choose to run, what scheme, what play, someone like Dwight has no role defensively. So you have to go small against them, and now you're vulnerable to everything else they do. The real test will be what Clay can give on the defensive end, because he was one of the elite defensive players who would guard people of every position. Can he still do that? I don't think we've seen enough to make a determination either way. I have my doubts, but offensively, he's Clay fucking Thompson. But AC, the good thing going for Clay when it comes to defense is, well, let's bring it back to Danny Green, to Dwight Howard. If you're a good defender, if you have good defensive instincts, even if your legs aren't what they used to be, you're still going to be good. You're still going to be effective. You still have the right angles. You still have the right spacing. Those instincts don't go away. It's just the body that goes away. Yeah, and, and so much of defense is that, right? Like, you know, there's really two components. It's you need to be there's a baseline of physical attributes that you need to have. Like if you're just too small, no matter what you do, you're gonna be at a disadvantage, especially when playoff basketball where teams are gonna force switches and things like that. And and the Warriors use, you know, switching as much as just about anybody in the NBA over the last several years. But the thing with Clay Thompson is, apart from everything you said in terms of know how, he's at least got size right so he's always going to be able to at least compared to most two guards one of the biggest in the entire nba so when it comes to twos or threes he can at least confidently be able to contest a shot and then when it comes to know-how he's even the right place in the right time i have no doubt about that but i just wonder can he you know he's a guy who would guard the other team's best one and then steph would go to the two i don't know if he can guard like a jitterbug speed type anymore like he used to be able to like i remember he was awesome at guarding someone like kyrie irving back in the day can he still do that now I don't know. I have my doubts. Guys, his hair looks like mine right now. And if I pick it out, he can't guard his shadow. 
<laughs> I'm just I'm just giving you the heads up. Any guy in the league who has hair like mine, and uh, when Jalen I think Brunson? it out, Jalen Brunson, what? Nah, Jalen Brunson <laughs> hair not quite like he don't so, pick so, it out. So explain to those of us who don't have the amazing luxury of being able to see you like we do on this chat right now. What are, do you mean specifically? So, like, I haven't even been able to get a shave up for for a week and a half, two weeks, because I've been COVID quarantined, and it's like a ush bush where it's like half pat <laughs> down, but not quite like living his best life, you know, saluting the sun. So that's how like Clay has his his thing going right now and then he got the little like headband around it and it's just not a good look and when i saw it when he came out on the court <laughs> i was just i was crying eric tears and i didn't want it for him and i didn't want it for myself and i would just want the best for us because i worry about us and our hair so his hair don't look like a man who's ready to defend any type of good offensive player so i'm just saying <laughs> He ain't ready to defend, guys. So just to take this analogy as far as we can possibly take this, what type of hairstyle does mean that someone's ready to defend? I don't know. Uh, a hairstyle that is either short and low and close to the head and knows its place or a hairstyle that is long and exuberant and like waving out to the sun and going as close to the sun as possible. But like our prime, hair, prime Joakim Noah hair, you're saying the latter. Yeah, you know, Joe Kim Noah or, or Ho Kim Noah or whatever you want to call <laughs> oh, him these oh, days. <laughs> <laughs> that's the type of hair that's ready to defend. Now, my hair, nah, my hair is ready to sit in the house, talk shit about Ho Kims, and just not defend anyone. Or myself. Well, I hope you can defend yourself because you just said Hokim like five times. So you're about to have some <laughs> crazy Frenchman attacking you now. I got a swamp right over by my apartment. I'm just going to run over there and just, you know, get dirty and get uh, primitive and live there. He'll leave you know, me alone. Peppy Le Pew. A couple years ago for Halloween, Clay dressed up as Will Ferrell's character from Semi Pro. And. It feels like in the time he's been off, he's fully embraced that character because he has the exact same hairstyle now. And and see, he does. And I feel like if I were to pick it out, I would be there. And it's just it's not a it's not a good look because we all know Will Ferrell in that movie was a bum, a certified bum. And Clay's no bum. So I don't even know why Clay even allow himself or his dad. Mikhail allow him to come out like this. So I'm just I mean you for just, the light skin brothers. You just call Michael Thompson Mikhail. So <laughs> is it a Y in there or is it an I in there? It's a Mikhail. I mean is all you watch, I'm saying. You watch enough Wait. Lakers broadcast to hear this guy's name. Come on, bro. I've heard his name a hundred times and I don't care what they say. It's Mikhail. <laughs> with a like Y. A, he's, he's no like Michael. A, He's a he's a Russian apparently. Yeah, he's a Russian or a Frenchman or he's some guy. He's not he's not a Michael. He's not a Jordan. He's a Mikhail. All right, so so Eric, now you have to defend 
against a creepy looking Frenchman and Clay Thompson's dad. I you, mean, you're, you're coming at again, people like this, man. I think everyone is over 40. No, I hope, I mean, Joe Kelm, he's not over 40. So he's my, like, nemesis number one. That's the one I worry about. I might have to get on the run ASAP. So I, I don't know how we got into a hair discussion, <laughs> but guys, I think that's a good place to stop for today. You know, it, it's really exciting to see what happens in the West because I don't know. I, I feel like the final stretch is going to be crazy with these top Western teams duking it out for, for seeding. So, you know, let's see what happens. In any case, thank you all so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to like, comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to hit us up by emailing us at brownmenwontjump at gmail.com or on Instagram at brownmenwontjump. We hope you have a very happy, long weekend for those of you who have a long weekend for MLK Day. We'll catch you in the next one. Take care. Deuces. Peace, guys.